Reminds me of the feeling you get at the end of one of my favorite movie franchises of all time. Rocky. I know, you thought it was going to be Star Wars, but Rocky. Now, why Rocky? Well, he's from Philly, of course. My mother was born in Philadelphia. I lived near there for much of my childhood. Uh, But to be honest with you, it was also because growing up, now keep in mind when I say this, I'm talking about myself as as a young boy, but growing up, I thought my dad was Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) I'm telling you, particularly if you see photos of him at that late 70s, early 80s, uh, when I was, you know, a young boy, I would look at, he, they looked a lot alike to me. And if I'm being totally honest, there were times when my mom even reminded me a little of Adrian. Remember Adrian? I did it! So... Rocky was definitely a part of my childhood, part of growing up. Now, why did they keep making Rockies? You know, there's Rocky 1, there's Rocky 2, there's Rocky 3, 4, and 5, and 6. And then there's Creed 1 and Creed 2, which a lot of people call 7 and 8. So, why do they do it? You know why. They keep making money, right? But the other reason, the reason why they keep making money is because of the story. See, what are those Rocky stories all about? Well, it's about the use of power to obtain or maintain possession of something very valuable. In that case, the title of heavyweight boxing champion of the world. And all the wealth and all the prestige that comes along with that title. Think about it. In the first Rocky, he fights Apollo Creed, the reigning champ. And then they fight again because they tied the first time. And then they fight the third time after Rocky loses the title, makes Hulk Hogan mad, and has a couple of fights with Mr. T. And then they fight again. They kind of finish that fight at the beginning of the fourth movie before Apollo gets killed fighting a Russian fighter, and then Rocky has to fight him too. That's just the first four movies. The drama of a power struggle over the possession of something valuable never gets old, even if Sylvester Stallone does, or at least someday he's going to get old. You know, last week, Jason remarked that the question of the origin of John the Baptist's prophetic ministry was the first of five controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel in this part of Mark. He actually said it was the second of a series of five conflicts. So that makes this the second. This is Jesus 2. I don't don't know. Something like that. So why do the religious leaders and Jesus keep mixing it up? Because those chief priests and elders and scribes were so desperate to hold on to their position of power. The son has come to reclaim the vineyard. Last Sunday, the conflict was over authority. It was over power. This Sunday, the conflict is over ownership, possession. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning, you have granted us the honor and privilege of enjoying your presence, inhabiting the praises of your people. We have spoken 
the name of Jesus. Lord, that is not some magic incantation. It's not just a, a, a phrase or a buzzword that we just throw out to, to make things happen. Lord, we speak your name because you are the sun. You are the cornerstone. You are the one upon whom we are called to build our lives. You are the one that all of this is about. It's not about us. This isn't our show. So Lord, we pray that today you would open our hearts and our minds to not only your word, but all of its application, all of its implications, and how it might change and transform every single one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to join me in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. That we might honor the word of the Lord, would you please stand as I read it for us. This is the parable of the vineyard owner or of the wicked tenants. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful. In our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So, some of you have been joining us Wednesday nights as we've been looking at the final days of Jesus. And so, you may already know that today's passage, this second controversy was on the same day, and I'm so sorry, I was supposed to dismiss junior church, wasn't I? (laughs) Oh dear. So at this time, if you haven't done so already, please uh, send the children to junior church. They will have a lot of fun there. Not as much fun as we're going to have, but some. But anyway, if you've been with us for this study on Wednesday nights on the final days of Jesus, you know that This debate takes place on Tuesday, the same day uh, as the debate over John the Baptist's ministry, or as Jason likes to call him, JTB. Did that throw you off last week? I'm like, what, JTB? 
Who's that? Matthew has just, has Jesus telling another parable before this one. It's the one about the two sons. One who says no, but then obeys. And then the other says yes, but never does what he's asked to do. Hence the statement, Jesus began speaking in parables, plural. Unlike most of Jesus' parables, this one was meant to reveal truth, not hide it. So we begin in verse 1, talking about the owner. You may find the beginning of the parable familiar. As Jesus described the owner of the vineyard and all he did to create it, the chief priests, elders, and scribes likely recognized the reference Jesus was making. Like any good Hollywood mogul, wait a minute, is that possible? Is that an oxymoron, a good Hollywood mogul? Well, if there could be one, Jesus would be one, right? So like any good Hollywood mogul, Jesus used this parable to take an Old Testament trope, the image of Israel as God's vineyard, and he updated it for a modern audience, a reboot of sorts. See, even reboots aren't original. So the passage that likely came to mind was Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where we find the song of the vineyard. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my love's loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on, very fertile, on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug a winepress there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Originally, God had used Isaiah Isaiah, to share this song to warn God's people that he was withdrawing his protection of the nation so that the Assyrians could conquer them. God did this because his vineyard, Israel, which he had so carefully planted and cultivated and cared for, had not been fruitful. Sound familiar? Now, in the Gospel of Mark, along with the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus takes rejection one step further. Now God's vineyard, instead of being destroyed, would be given over to new management, and the leaders who had mismanaged it would be destroyed. As Jesus continued his parable in verses 2 through 5, he described the efforts of the owner to collect what was due. Jesus had made no effort to hide the identity of the vineyard owner. It's God. And as creator and owner of Israel, he had expected fruitfulness. So like God... Jesus said the owner of the vineyard in his story had similar expectations. Vineyard owners were due a portion of the produce of the land each year. 
One commentator reports that tenants were usually required to turn over between one-fourth and one-half of the produce to the owner's agents. The wicked tenants of Jesus' parable, representing the religious leaders of Israel, had no interest in fulfilling that part of the deal. Remember, this parable was really about a story of raw ambition, the raw ambition of those entrusted to the leadership of God's people. The conflict was over the possession of the people. Jesus was saying that the people belonged to their Lord and that, and that the leaders were merely caretakers or tenants. The leaders insisted that the vineyard belonged to them. When the vineyard owner of the parable sent servant after servant to take what rightfully belonged to him, the tenants resisted every step of the way. Here in Mark's version of the parable, the servants were progressively treated worse as time went by. The first was beaten. The second was hit on the head and mistreated. The third was killed. And each successive wave of servants were either beaten or killed by the tenants who had agreed to work the land in return for giving a significant portion of what they produced. In this way, the chief priests, elders, and scribes who faced off against Jesus that day were following in the footsteps of their ancestors. Here's how 2 Chronicles, a book the leaders, these leaders would have been quite familiar with, described how these ancestral leaders had treated God's prophets over the centuries. In verses 15 and 16 of chapter 36, it says, But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again. For he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. Not long after telling this parable, Jesus took the gloves off and directly confronted the religious leaders about their responsibility for the treatment of those sent by God. Matthew chapter 23, verses 33 through 36. Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. Remember, this was not persecution at the hands of outsiders. This was how God's people had treated those who had spoken for him so that his people would have the guidance of his truth and wisdom. He had loved his people by giving them those who were willing to stand and deliver the word of God to them so that they would benefit and be blessed. Now in verses 6 through 8, Jesus says the vineyard's owner has one more he can send, his beloved son. This is the third time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus is called beloved. It also happened at his baptism in chapter 1, verse 1. 
And again in chapter 9, verse 7, during the transfiguration. The author of Hebrews described the arrival of the Son of God in redemptive history this way, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There was a certain finality to this move. After enduring the mistreatment and murder of his prophets over the centuries, God had reached the final step in his plan. It was time to send his one and only son. And if the tenants would not respect the son, why should he send more prophets? Foolishly, the tenants did not respond as they should have. Instead, they saw it as an opportunity to seize control of the vineyard once and for all. Somehow, they expected that eliminating the owner's son would allow them to take possession of the vineyard. Now, Jesus doesn't stop to explain this, but it could be that they presumed the owner to be dead after all this time. After all, he had never come back all this time. Or maybe they thought killing the son would allow the tenants to claim ownership since the murder would leave the current vineyard owner with no heirs to stake a claim. Stephen, the deacon and apologist, was still calling the same leaders to account sometime later when he said in Acts chapter 7, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Again, it was Tuesday of that last week of Jesus' life when the actual Son of God was crucified for the sins of the world. The religious leaders were about to do exactly what the tenants in the parable did, which begs the question Jesus asks next. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And he answers it. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Hear that answer. He will come and destroy the tenants. He will give the vineyard to others. Now this was already beginning to happen by the time Jesus told this parable. He had had a number of encounters with non-Israelites, with Gentiles, in various different ways. You remember the centurion who asked him to heal his servant. You remember the Phoenician woman. So there were a number of cases from the perspective of the religious leaders as if it wasn't bad enough that this Messiah figure was lavishing his attention on drunkards and prostitutes. Now he was beginning to show how his gospel was for everyone, no matter who they were, no matter what they looked like, no matter where they came from. If God's people would no longer receive his word, then the vineyard would be given to new management. In the book of Acts, that dam broke wide open from Cornelius to Ephesus, from Peter to Paul. The grace of God was and is unstoppable. A couple of examples here from the book of Acts. Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. That's the Jews they're speaking to. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
Then later in Acts 28, verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. There was no mistaking it now. Jesus publicly shared this parable to make it known that the time had come to end the old covenant and to end the keepers of that covenant. Those religious leaders knew that he was talking about them. So let's talk about what they perceived. In verse 12, it says that they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They picked a funny time to actually start listening to Jesus, didn't they? It was too late. Instead of being convicted, they hardened their hearts further. Only their fear of the crowds that hung on Jesus' every word kept them from acting out the parable right then and there. A few days earlier, when Jesus had made his triumphal entry into the city... The the children had shouted from Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jesus quoted from earlier in that psalm, verses 22 and 23, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It's true. The Lord was doing something truly marvelous in front of their eyes. He was fulfilling those particular verses and bringing about the salvation of the world. He was doing it by using the one that the builders had rejected. So what happened here? How did we get to this point where God was ready to throw out his own chosen people and give that identity to the Gentiles? It was simple, really. Simple as it was sad. They had forgotten who they were And who they served. They neglected and even opposed the mission of God that He had given them in favor of their own agenda. That's that mission of God, that missio Dei that uh, Brother Wayne was praying about earlier. So, what was it that had been given to Israel? Well, Psalm 96, verse 3, gives us a picture of it, says it well Declare His glory among the nations, His wondrous works among all peoples. The mission given to God's people found its origin in the promises of God to Abraham. Those promises had literally shaped the identity of the nation. Those promises were repeated over and over again. We have an example in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 14, which says, The Lord was standing there beside him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out towards the west, east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now, New Testament writers again and again pointed back to that promise as being fulfilled in Christ and incorporated into the mission of the church. You can look at Acts chapter 3, verse 25, And Galatians 3, verse 8, for examples. Have you ever noticed that both Israel and the church have essentially the same mission? Israel was called to go and make disciples as a nation of priests for the rest of mankind. Does that sound familiar? Didn't the Apostle Peter call the church 
quote, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Woe to the people of God who abandoned their God-given mission to serve themselves. Heaven help us if we do as the leaders Jesus spoke this parable to did. The chief priests, elders, and scribes perceived correctly. Jesus had told this parable against them. But then they just walked away. And they plotted to end this threat to all they possessed. And if that's what they perceived, then what should we perceive? What should we see and hear? There are two truths that we should perceive and apply from this parable. Each of them can be applied differently depending upon who you are. That is, whether you're a believer or not a believer. The first truth is this. The Lord's grace and patience. It's all over this story. Now, anytime subjects like sin and judgment come up in preaching, it makes people nervous. Let me assure you, it makes preachers nervous. There's a good reason for that, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you're here this morning and you have never turned from your sin in what we church folk call repentance, then you need to know that God's grace is open to all. And until you draw your last breath, it is never too late. The thing that should really stand out to us in this parable is how gracious and patient God is shown to be. He sent wave after wave after wave of prophets to his people to call them back to his mission. In case you didn't know, this is how God treats his enemies. He launched a rescue mission for us, and then he gives us every opportunity to take advantage of his offer. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I suspect most of us here would probably put ourselves in the saved category. You have repented of your sin in the past, and you've put your trust in the person and work of Christ. But perhaps over time, you've crept into old ways. You may wonder, have I gone too far? Is it too late for me? Here's what the prophet Joel has to say to you. Chapter 2, verse 13. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. That may sound familiar to you. Grace and long-suffering patience are distinctive characteristics of God. It's literally who he is. Moses learned this personally in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love, listen, to a thousand generations. Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. 
That's the Lord's full name. A compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. I think there are some members of the British royal family who might have longer names, but still, as names go, this is a pretty good one. Whether you are a sinner lost in your sin, or you are a prodigal child wandering way too far from home, please hear me. God, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God. And while this is absolutely true, we must also recognize that this grace and patience is a limited time offer. I have a confession to make. I didn't finish reading the Lord's name. In the second half of verse 7, the the name continues, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. There is simply no question of the validity of the charges against humanity. God is righteous and he is just. That means that we're in trouble if we remain in our sin. The proof is clear as Paul provides it in Romans chapter 3. Skipping around verses 9 through 12 and then verse 19. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Remember, God is gracious and patient, but he is no fool. We are his creation, and we are accountable to him. That's what offended the religious leaders so much. Very similar to our culture in this day, They just couldn't get over the fact that the vineyard was God's. They wanted possession of it. They wanted it all to themselves, any way they liked it. But what about the church? What about those who call themselves Christians? Do we perceive how Jesus could speak to us today through this same parable? I believe so. Before we look at that, we must remind ourselves of this precious truth given to us by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This assurance is given to believers in Christ unequivocally. There are no caveats. There are no exclusions. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, yes, hallelujah, but, There is discipline for God's children. So for the sake of time, I'd love to read to you verses 5 through 11 of Hebrews 12, but we're just going to hit the main points. The first couple of verses are actually a quotation from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Verse 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
So God's children in Christ need never fear condemnation. But as God is our loving and faithful Heavenly Father, we can expect discipline. It may be tempting to read Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants and shake our heads at those thick, scold religious leaders. How could they call themselves Abraham's children, the chosen people of God, and yet fight God for control of the vineyard? Surely we don't do anything like that, do we? Before I proceed, I want to just remind everyone, no one here, most of all the speaker, is perfect. This church is full of former and recovering liars and gluttons and adulterers and thieves and materialists. We're all in that boat. But I mention that because here we come to what is probably the hardest part of being an elder. Hardest part of preaching God's word. Sometimes it must be applied even when you know it's going to sting a little. Or maybe even a lot. Our passage today does not address these topics directly. But the warning that it provides against attempting to seize control of what belongs to God covers a whole range of subjects, not the least these two. Over the last five to ten years, the arena of politics has become an all-consuming idol for too many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Genesis 29 verse 7 says, Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. This is but one of many passages in both the Old Testament and New Testament that call God's people to work for the good of our neighbors. As Christians living in a democratic republic, part of our calling to be salt and light entails us using our voices to advocate for righteousness and justice as God defines them. Unfortunately, many Christians use their voices for division and strife rather than for truth and love of neighbor. Now, why is that? Well, sometimes we are not as different from those religious leaders as we might think. They were driven to kill Jesus by their fear of losing position and power. They failed to heed the warning of passages like Psalm chapter 20, verses 6 through 9. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. The next time you or your fellow Christian is tempted to lash out at others out of fear, remind yourself or remind them, kindly of course, that this whole world and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Yes, Absolutely, use your voice to oppose evil and to champion good, but do so with faith in the name of the Lord your God. Also, over the last few decades, a growing trend out there in the world has found increasing acceptance within the body of Christ. I know that because the percentages of people living together, cohabitating, in our culture, is impossible to achieve without the participation of those claiming the name of Christ. It's now more common 
for young adults to use cohabitation as the next step in their relationship than to be married. They view it as a sort of experiment in personal and sexual compatibility. The reasoning often goes like this. We don't want to be another divorce statistic. We don't want to be trapped in an unhappy marriage. So we'll try things out first. We'll save money. We'll retain our independence and have the best of both worlds. You know what the Bible says about people leaning on their own understanding, right? We just read it this week, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. The Bible doesn't necessarily call out living together specifically. But see what these next two passages have to say and and tell me if you think they might be applicable. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this, Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, Because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Now this verse makes it pretty plain. That the only time anyone should share a bed with another. Is after the establishment of a marriage covenant between that man and that woman. Not before. It's difficult. Perhaps unreasonably so. To keep the marriage bed undefiled when sharing a home or a room. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. This verse gives a clear warning regarding the nature and impact of sexual sin. To be clear, I mean, let's be very honest here. Cohabitation is by no means the only or even worst example of sexual immorality. We'd have to add pornography, adultery, homosexuality. There's all kinds of other sexually immoral sins that many of us find ourselves entrapped in. But it's hard to flee when you share a key and a mailbox and an address. Such things should not be known among the body of Christ. How can we be salt and light to the world around us when we live just like they do? If God's word is unconvincing to you, how about the Wall Street Journal? Here's a recent headline. Too risky to wed in your 20s? Not if you avoid cohabitating first. Research shows that marrying young without ever having lived together with a partner makes for some of the lowest divorce rates. Now, wait a minute. I thought the idea was to not become a divorce statistic. Listen, Chandler and Monica, they lied to us. Leonard and Penny, they led us down the primrose path. If you're sitting there going, huh? Don't worry about it. If you know, you know. In study after study, here's what the world is telling us. Not the church, not Christian ministries with an agenda. Here's what the rest of the world is telling us. Women who live with someone before marrying are more likely to divorce once married. Cohabitating women are less financially secure than married women. Men living with a partner make less money. Couples living together report more depression and more alcohol problems. And they are much more likely to get divorced and stay broken up. So why am I going here? Why am I bringing this up? 
because it is one of the more pervasive examples of Christians trying to take the vineyard back. It's an example, by by no means the only one, of God's people tripping over the cornerstone rather than building their lives on them. In Matthew and Luke's versions of the parable we've just read from the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes on to warn that those who refuse to build on the cornerstone will be crushed by it. Remember, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Did you hear the math earlier in Exodus 34? He's he's extending faithful love to how many generations? A thousand generations. How many generations was he punishing sin to? Three and four. What could the owner of the vineyard do more for his vineyard? So this brings us to the last point of application. The sun is the cornerstone. So, there are some implications of that. The sun is the cornerstone, so the vineyard is under new management. As I mentioned earlier, the movement from the Jews to the Gentiles was already underway. Within a generation or two, the church would become a majority Gentile, and it hasn't looked back since. Now, God still has a plan for his people that will see many of them come to faith in the Messiah. And it has been happening over the centuries, and Scripture indicates that there will be an influx of Jewish believers as redemptive history comes to a close. And since that is the case, who leads the church now? Well, the church remains the body of Christ. We are his. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 says that by his crucifixion and resurrection, Christ purchased people for God by his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. The sun is the cornerstone. We belong to him now. At this church, we don't often talk about our church because we know it isn't ours. We do talk about how this local church, this portion of the body of Christ, is Jesus-ruled, elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally accountable. The religious leaders had made a critical error. They thought the vineyard was theirs. I want to assure you, any way I can, that the elders leading this church do so only as under-shepherds. Jesus rules this church. Our elders remind ourselves often of the words of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow, feller, feller, as a fellow elder <laughs> and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Our elders covet your prayers. We love this church and we strive to serve your Lord and ours as faithfully and as humbly as we know how. We know this because the sun is the cornerstone. It's not us. But also, 
because the Son is the cornerstone, our lives are not our own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 reminds us of this. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body, and I would add, with your life. The price that Jesus paid for our freedom from sin and our victory over death was too costly to be refused or abused. We are not our own. This was the fundamental error the religious leaders made. They had so warped God's word and God's law that it had become a question of what God owed them instead of humble gratitude that the Lord had chosen Israel to be his ambassadors to the world. With Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that calling went to the church. You may have heard this story before, but it's one of my favorites, so I'm going to tell it again. There was once a little boy, and he loved sailboats, so his dad bought him a kit. He, he put one together. He painted it. He named it, put the name of the boat on the back. He tightened up the sails, got it all ready for a big race in town. And so one day he was trying out his boat because he wanted to make sure it was ready, right? And he let that boat go in the water. All of a sudden, big wind gust blew that boat far out of reach. There was no way he was going to recover his boat. He missed the race. He wasn't able to participate. And so he found himself walking down the street one day, and he couldn't believe his eyes. He looked in a, a pawn shop there on, on, in town, and right there in the window was his boat. He knew it was his boat. It was the same color, same boat design. It had the name that he had given the boat on the back still, still there. And so he went inside and he talked to the shop owner, you know, how much for the boat? And it was pretty expensive. So he took the rest of that summer and he worked odd jobs and he mowed lawns and he did everything he could think of until he had enough money to go back into that store and buy that boat. You see, he had made that boat. And then, when he walked out of that store, he had bought that boat. Everyone within the sound of my voice, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, this is how God looks at you. He made you. He gave you life. But then he sent his son and shed the blood of his son to buy you again, to redeem you. Do not refuse or abuse that gift. We have a gracious and compassionate God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, we find the words of your son inspiring and convicting. Lord, we did not have time to cover all the ways that this parable could have spoken to all the many ways that we still struggle with our flesh. So, Lord, I pray that if consciences have been pricked, if conviction has been felt, that, Lord, they would also sense your great compassion and grace. And that, Lord, if there are some who are still hardening their hearts, that you would 
by your power and grace, because of your love for us, that you would still break through. Lord, call us to yourself here and in this time and in this place. Lord, whether it's us or those we love, Lord, we know that you are the cornerstone. And Lord, we seek, we ask that you would help us and all that we love to build our lives upon you. Because Lord, we know that the offer of your grace and patience is a limited time offer. Lord, you are so good to us, far better to us than we could ever possibly deserve. So Lord, may we take you up on that offer now while the hour stands. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.